Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, today's workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Candice, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Lymphoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Advances in Immunotherapy and the Treatment of Lymphoma. And I have to say this program is a collaborative effort between the Lymphoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care, and it really is because of that collaboration. They really have so many of you on the call today, and, and this, is a, this is an area of great interest. Um, and we have over 767 participants on this call, and you come from all over the United States, and we do have international participants from Australia, Canada, France, India, Italy, the Netherlands, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you really come from all over the world, and it's really a global call. It's really a credit to you that you have chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, today's program is supported through unrestricted educational grants to the Lymphoma Research Foundation from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Juno Therapeutics, Kite Pharma, and Merck and & Company. And we really thank them for their support of this program and for their corporate collaboration in making this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Bruce Chesson. Dr. Chesson is Professor of Medicine, Head of Hematology, Deputy Chief, Division of Hematology Oncology, Georgetown University Hospital, Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Chesson is going to present an overview of immunotherapy, immunotherapy treatment options for lymphoma, and clinical trial updates. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Chesson. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, traditional treatment modalities for lymphoma had included surgery, where we slice them up, and radiation therapy, where we burn them, and chemotherapy, where we poison them. Now we're in a, in a new era where we have targeted therapies, immune therapies, which are more specific and hopefully will be more effective. Now, the immune system is a very complicated uh, group of cells and blood proteins that fight not only bacteria and other infectious agents, but also cancers. There are some parts of the immune system that allow us to respond rapidly to things. These include cells such as macrophages, neutrophils, natural killer cells and T cells, and those which are more slower response, such as uh, B cells, which produce antibodies, and some T cells, etc. And the immune system is found in the tonsils, in the thymus gland, which is in the chest, in lymph nodes, and the lymphatic system, in the bone marrow, and the spleen, and circulating in the bloodstream a variety of white blood cells. The concept that the immune system might be possible as a sort of stealth bomb rather than an atomic bomb in killing cancer cells was developed back, oh, in the 1800s by a chap named Paul Ehrlich, who was the founder of modern immunology, and he was the first to coin the term the magic bullet, which would be would target tumor cells or parasites specifically and leave the rest of the body alone. 
And what he was describing, what we now call an antibody or a monoclonal antibody, which is a protein naturally found in the blood, but we can generate them in the, in the laboratory as well, and sticks to a specific protein on cells, such as lymphoma cells, like a lock and key. And then it kills these cells through a variety of mechanisms. One is called antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. One is called complement-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. And one is direct cell death. And through these mechanisms, it kills lymphoma cells. Now, there are a number of these antibodies currently in clinical practice. The one you've probably heard most about is rituximab which is directed at a protein called CD20. And indeed, rituximab was the first agent to really improve the efficacy of chemotherapy in follicular lymphoma, where combined with pretty much any chemotherapy, it makes it better, in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and pretty much any kind of B-cell lymphoma. But... Until we're curing everybody without toxicity, we need to continue to improve. So we've looked at ways of improving on antibodies such as rituximab. Increasing the dose hasn't done anything. I mentioned combining with chemotherapy was, was a good idea. Maintenance is a controversial topic. Uh, I'm not a fan of it. It prolongs the time to progression but does not improve survival. We can do things to the molecule. We can make them radioactive. We can re-engineer the molecule. We can combine it with toxins and other things and combine with other biological agents. And there's a new version of rituximab called obinutuzumab, uh, which is now on the market and in certain diseases such as chronic lymphocytic leukemia and follicular lymphoma, it appears to be more effective than rituximab, not so in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, however. And we've also shown uh, that it may work in patients who are resistant to rituximab. So it may be more effective and work when rituximab doesn't. Now, there are other things we can do to the molecule. We can make it radioactive. The concept of radioimmunotherapy, normally in a lymphoma, when you treat a patient with one of these antibodies, it sticks to the lymphoma cells and only kills those lymphoma cells to which it sticks. On the other hand, when you link it to a radioisotope, and there is one of these on the market called Y90 ibrutumumab tioxetan or zevalin, it not only kills the cells to which it is bound, but neighboring lymphoma cells as well. And this is something that only takes about eight days. Day one, you get an injection. Day eight, you get an injection. And that's it, unlike chemotherapy, which can take months to administer. And in patients who have failed other therapies, the response rate is up to 80%. But it is not used very much uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, it's very complicated. Uh, there are a number of criteria that prevent certain patients from getting it. Doctors are more comfortable with giving lots of rituximab. Um, and there is a concern of secondary leukemia that may occur uh, five or ten years down the road. So rather than do that, we're relying more on new drugs. 
But there's another concept, amping up monoclonal antibodies by combining them with a toxin, which by itself would be life-threatening, but when you hook it to the antibody, the antibody sticks to the cell, the complex is taken up into the cell, the poison is released inside of the cell itself where it disrupts the mechanisms of the cell and kills it. And even though this sounds like sci-fi, there's one of these drugs on the market called Brentuximab Vidotin or Adcetris, which is highly active in the treatment of Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's an antibody directed to a protein called CD30, rituximab with CD20, and in patients with relapsed Hodgkin's lymphoma, the response rate, even if they failed a stem cell transplant, was about 80%. And in other diseases, such as some T-cell lymphomas, as high as 86%. So highly, highly effective therapy. And it has now been moved to the front line in Hodgkin's lymphoma in some clinical trials. Uh, there's one called the Echelon 1 study, which has been completed, where it's combined with chemotherapy. And we, in fact, have a study at our place where we're combining it with another monoclonal antibody as frontline treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Another thing you can do is create what's called a bite, a bispecific T-cell engager, B-I-T-E, where you take a portion of an antibody, which would normally stick to the tumor, and you take a portion of an antibody that would normally stick to a killer cell, and you combine them into one molecule. So what it does is it brings the tumor cell and the killer cell in closer proximity. And there is one of these drugs on the market called blinatumumab, which has a very high response rate, particularly in a disease called acute lymphoblastic leukemia, where about 90% of patients respond. It's also active in lymphomas, but has some toxicities uh, that the various companies are trying to work out. Uh, so what's been going on now for about the last oh, decade and a half are attempts to combine biological, immunological targeted agents with each other. We've done a series of clinical trials combining two monoclonal antibodies, uh, but what has been particularly exciting is the combination of an antibody with another kind of targeted agent. There are lots of these, some which target the surface of the lymphoma cell, some that target the inner mechanics of the lymphoma cell, and some that target the environment that the lymphoma cell lives in. Uh, about oh, 15 years ago, we developed, well, 14 years ago, we developed a regimen called R-squared, which was rituximab and revlimid, a drug called lenalidomide. Not chemotherapy, biological, immunological therapy, but in untreated patients with follicular and low-grade lymphomas, we got a response rate of 96% with about 80% complete remissions. This regimen is now being combined, excuse me, not combined, compared with standard rituximab chemotherapy. There was a study called the Relevance Trial with 1,000 patients. It's been closed now because it completed its accrual. And so it's R-squared versus R-chemo, and the chemo could have been any one of a number of standard regimens. And if it proves to be better than R-chemo, it may replace 
chemotherapy in the treatment of follicular lymphoma. There are now uh, a number of other immune therapies out there. Uh, we studied vaccines for a while, but in lymphoma, they really didn't fare very well. Uh, we have drugs called checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, normally, uh, we have active fighting cells in our body, but when you have a tumor like a lymphoma, it sort of puts them to sleep. And this is because of the interaction of a molecule on the lymphoma cell and a molecule on the killer cell. And when these two mate, this, the killer cells are put to sleep, like Ambien for, for killer cells. But these checkpoint inhibitors break that bond, wake up your own killer cells to eradicate the lymphoma. And this has been very, very effective in Hodgkin's lymphoma, and it's also effective in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And the last one I'll mention in just a word are the CAR T cells, which Dr. Schuster will be talking about in great detail. So what we're doing now is having a, a long, long list of non-chemo immunotherapy trials for a variety of lymphomas, combining antibodies with checkpoint inhibitors, with drugs that target the inner workings of the cell. Dozens and dozens of these studies are ongoing at various centers around the country, giving us the opportunity to perhaps get rid of chemotherapy once and for all using more effective and less toxic treatments. So to summarize, the immune system is a complex interaction of cells and other factors. We have new agents that target specific parts of the immune system. We're developing lots of combinations. These have the potential to replace chemotherapy, as I said, less toxic, more effective, and increasing the potential for curing patients with lymphoma. And I'll stop there. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chesson. That was outstanding and really so incredibly informative. Thank you very much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Stephen Chester. Dr. Chester is Director of Lymphoma Program, Director of Lymphoma's Translational Research, Professor of Medicine, Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Shuster is going to address emerging treatment approaches, managing immunotherapy treatment side effects, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. And I'll do and I'll I'll do all that within 13 minutes. I promise. Uh, anyway, I, I'd like to um, thank uh, both the Lymphoma uh, Research um, Foundation and Cancer Care for the uh, hosting this conference and for giving Dr. Chess and I the opportunity to speak. And um, I'd like to thank Bruce for so well laying the foundation uh, behind what uh, I feel is the the current state of uh, of the art in applying immunotherapies uh, the, the immunotherapeutic approach to lymphoma um, he um, Bruce mentioned Paul Ehrlich and uh, and the magic bullet concept and actually it's interesting you know one of the magic bullets was found in a serum um, against diphtheria, and, and a serum is a, uh, a taken the fluid component of the blood from patients that had had diphtheria and was used to treat patients with diphtheria and actually was active, and, and that was really the first antibody-based therapy. They didn't know what an antibody was uh, at the time, but these proteins that circulate in the blood that the body makes in response to an infection can be used to prevent subsequent infections or to be harvested from the blood and given to other patients with the infection and to have a, uh, uh, a therapeutic effect. So, so Paul Ehrlich was really the 
father of monoclonal antibody therapy. The, um, uh, we learned much more about antibodies and B cells, one of the cellular components of uh, uh, the immune system, um, in the uh, uh, latter parts of the uh, 20th century. And I think it's useful to kind of think of the very late 80s and 90s uh, as the era of, you know, B cell biology and then, uh, you know, starting a little bit before the turn of the century to present, you know, we're, we're kind of in the era of T cell biology and therapy. And, you know, the B cell um, uh, era was, uh, you know, a triumph of uh, our understanding of of antibody structure and function. Uh, we We use the technological developments of the recombinant DNA um, um, uh, approach to make uh, antibodies that could be used therapeutically and mass-produced. So the two technologies that converged were the monoclonal antibody technology and the recombinant DNA technology, and we were able to make antibodies directed to antigens or targets on B lymphocytes and on B cell lymphoma cells that were um, therapeutically very active, targeted, as Bruce said, so so much less toxic. They didn't have as much off-target uh, toxicity, and um, uh, and actually uh, were subsequently shown not only to be useful in patients who had failed conventional therapies, but also um, important for prolonging survival when patients had this form of serotherapy or monoclonal antibody therapy uh, as part of their first therapy. And this was shown specifically for rituximab, an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. So um, still sticking with the antibody scene, um, the question becomes, you know, is man uh, smarter than nature, and can we use these antibodies um, uh, in a, um, a targeted and more efficacious fashion uh, in terms of uh, a cancer therapeutic? And uh, people have attached radioisotopes to um, monoclonal antibodies directed at B cell antigens with success. Um, and even with long-lasting success for many patients, although this technology is not really caught on, as Bruce said. The um, people have uh, put other payloads onto these antibodies, and these uh, have been chemotherapeutic agents. And uh, um, there's one in particular, I think, success story is the brintuximab-vidotin story, uh, because some of the patients who are rescued with this uh, combination therapy um, uh, after failing traditional therapies for Hodgkin's can actually go on and be long-term survivors. So it's, it's powerful and uh, um, yet uh, uh, I think maybe uh, uh, not, not necessarily uh, the end of the story. Um, the other way that antibodies have been used actually overlaps with um, with T cells, so we move now past the year 2000. You know, the T cell receptor, which was 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 identified after the B cell receptor uh, in the in the late 80s and 90s, and, B, and T cell biology was being studied, and then suddenly there was a convergence of our understanding of T cell biology with the technological developments of uh, uh, revolving around gene therapy. And of course, recombinant DNA, which now is, uh, you know, is, it makes um, um, it makes a bunch of this stuff just cut and paste. Um, so anyway, uh, B cells brought 
uh, B cell biology, our understanding of antibodies, brought us forward in terms of new agents that were of benefit and even uh, um, survival benefit. And now the question is T cells. Can we use them in a similar way to uh, treat the untreatable diseases, untreatable with our current therapies, and to improve survival? And um, so how do we go about doing this? Well, you know, one of the things we've been working on here um, um, is the using the chimeric antigen receptor modified T cells or CAR T cells directed against a B cell target antigen CD19, and um, uh, the way this works is a using a, a lentiviral gene therapeutic approach, a crippled non-virulent um, version of the HIV virus is used to deliver a gene. Uh, into the T cell nucleus that codes for a receptor to the B cell target CD19. Um, those T cells then, uh, after expansion and growth in the lab when given to patients, will hit their targets on B cells and kill the target cells the same way that T cells would kill a virally infected cell or a organ transplant from an incompatible donor. The way the, they're using the uh, uh, the the mechanisms that the immune system normally uses uh, to uh, uh, protect the host. Um, we've gotten very, very good results with uh, uh, this approach in patients with advanced stage uh, um, follicular lymphomas who, have, who had had uh, most, uh, if not all, of the um, e existing therapies and with a very poor prognosis. Uh, we were able about three-quarters of the time to achieve a complete remission and most of these remissions now, uh, well, all of the complete remissions have been durable remissions. No patient has, has had a relapse, and those patients now have been followed in, on average, about two years. Um, similarly, with large B-cell lymphoma uh, that has um, progressed or, uh, or was resistant to conventional treatments, um, th those patients now, about half the time, can have a complete remission, and none of our patients achieving complete remission with the T-cell approach have relapsed, and the average follow-up now is about two years. So I'm very excited that, that we ha now, like the monoclonal antibody impact, we will have the T-cell uh, therapy impact, and I'm sure there will be technological improvements. One improvement, briefly, uh, uh, is the combination of these uh, T cell uh, uh, treatments with the immune checkpoint blockade uh, approach. Bruce mentioned that tumor cells can turn off or make the immune system uh, sleepy, and uh, uh, and that's because of the of certain ligands that are upregulated or expressed on tumor cells, which uh, hit receptors on T cells and turn them off. Well, CAR T cells are T cells, so they still have those receptors, and in some patients, that is likely the mechanism. Uh, for failure to respond. You know, we've done some studies combining the same uh, drugs that have shown spectacular responses in Hodgkin lymphoma and some activity in non-Hodgkin lymphoma with the CAR T-cell approach, and it looks like those, for those patients, a proportion of the patients that don't fail or that don't respond, rather, to the T-cells alone will respond to the combination, and we have some very promising early results. So I think we're really headed into a, the, a new era where, where we've taken the B-cell approach an antibody approach very far. We're now in the T cell era or the cellular approach, and we've got a ways to go, uh, but the future looks bright. In terms of toxicities, there are unique toxicities, um, and uh, with regard to the antibody therapies, probably infusion-related toxicities are the uh, most common 
um, during the infusion of the first dose, uh, there's, there's chills, fever, back pain, things like that commonly experienced, um, and subsequent treatments, that's less um, uh, much of a problem. And probably it's related to rapid tumor cell kill with cytokine release and complement activation and things like that. But, uh, you know, when you're sick and fighting an infection, you don't feel well. When we're giving you immunotherapy to fight your cancer, you might not feel well all the time. Um, similarly, with the CAR T cells, patients can develop a very florid um, cytokine release syndrome uh, with low blood pressure and fever and uh, uh, the, the need for intensive medical care. Um, however, uh, uh, with careful um, attention to patients and the fact that we have antidotes to slow down the uh, reaction of the T cells, um, we, uh, in, in our lymphoma studies, haven't lost any patients uh, to this type of, of serious reaction. The immune checkpoint molecules, by the way, can cause a unique set of reactions, uh, potential side effects um, that are autoimmune. Um, colitis uh, uh, manifesting as persistent diarrhea, pneumonitis uh, presenting as a pneumonia, skin rashes, endocrine disorders, etc. These are all unique um, um, potential adverse effects that were not uh, characteristic of the older uh, chemotherapeutic regimens that were used to treat lymphoma. And, and many of these are, are uh, easily managed if recognized by the um, um, treating physician and if reported by the patients uh, uh, to the uh, treating physicians. I just want to um, wind up by saying I think it's real, the, the issue of communicating with your um, healthcare team, your, your uh, physician, your nurse practitioner, um, uh, your pharmacist, if possible, um, is really important, uh, uh, a really important message for patients. Um, these new therapies are spectacular. They do have unique uh, uh, potential toxicities, and these toxicities are, are, are readily manageable, provided that there's an open dialogue between uh, and, uh, the patient and, and the provider. Um, so there needs to be always um, uh, a dialogue and an open um, um, avenue of communication uh, as a patient and physician embark on, uh, on therapy together. I'll stop here and uh, uh, turn it over to the group, I guess, for questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Schuster. That was really excellent, uh, really outstanding, and a lot of information for people, and I think there'll be questions for you definitely during the Q&A. And our next speaker, before we take questions, is uh, Mr. Maxwell Mulcahy. He's Senior Director of Patient and Professional Programs with Boma Research Foundation, and really an important architect for today's program, as well as really providing support to make this program possible. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Mr. Mulcahy, who will say some words regarding the Lymphoma Research Foundation. Uh, Mr. Mulcahy? Thank you very much, Carolyn, and to Cancer Care for our continued partnership. I would also like to thank our esteemed faculty, Dr. Bruce Chesson from Georgetown University Hospital and Dr. Stephen Schuster from the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you for being here today to share your expertise with the group and for all you do to support the Lymphoma Research Foundation and people affected by a lymphoma diagnosis. I'd also like to acknowledge our corporate partners, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Juno Therapeutics, Kite Pharma, and Merck and & Company. And last but not least, I would like to thank each of you for joining us on today's teleconference, which is part of a larger education program specific to immuno-oncology and immune-based therapies to treat lymphoma that LRF launched this year. 
The Lymphoma Research Foundation is the nation's largest organization devoted to funding innovative research and serving the lymphoma and CLL community. LRF's mission is to eradicate lymphoma and serve those touched by the disease, and we achieve this mission by providing comprehensive education programs, outreach initiatives, and patient services. The foundation remains dedicated to identifying potentially life-saving therapies for lymphoma and CLL through an aggressively funded research program that's guided by LRF scientific leadership, who are among the leaders of the world's leading experts in lymphoma. LRF invests millions of dollars each year to combat lymphoma and has played a key role to accelerating the understanding and treatment of this blood cancer. To date, LRF has funded nearly $60 million in lymphoma-specific research. The foundation also remains committed to providing comprehensive disease-specific resources, programs, and services to those who have been affected by a lymphoma diagnosis, as well as specific resources on immunotherapy and supportive care. LRF is developing immunotherapy fact sheet with information about FDA-approved therapies for non-Hodgkin and Hodgkin lymphoma, as well as therapies currently under investigation, and the fact sheet will be made available digitally on our Learn section of LRF's website and in hard copy through LRF's publication order form. We also have a YouTube video on immunotherapy that features Dr. Chesson, and that, that will also be made available on our website in the coming weeks. And also remember that the Lymphoma Research Foundation offers the services of our Lymphoma Helpline, where professionally trained staff can assist you in your search for immunotherapy information, resources, and other support services, including a clinical trials information service, which provides information about clinical trials, and then we'll do the lead work to help you identify an immunotherapy clinical trial appropriate for your diagnosis and in your geographic area. And, of course, we also offer the Lymphoma Support Network, which is a national one-to-one -one peer support program that pairs lymphoma patients or caregivers with others who have had a similar lymphoma experience. And disease specificity is always a hallmark of the foundation, and we offer a variety of educational resources, which include comprehensive disease guides on Hodgkin lymphoma, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and we have a new booklet on transplantation options. We, have, we also have disease-specific fact sheets on common and uncommon lymphoma subtypes as well as on supportive care. And, of course, we also offer our award-winning mobile app called Focus on Lymphoma. Um, the app provides patients and caregivers with comprehensive biology and treatment information on their lymphoma subtype as well as tools to help manage their diagnosis and treatment side effects. The Focus on Lymphoma mobile app allows users to record doctor sessions, manage medications, track blood work, and document treatment side effects. And it's available for free download in the Apple App Store, as well as in Google Play. So I'd encourage you to download the app today. I hope that you take advantage of some of these great resources and services. And I also want to invite you to please join us on December 12th from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time for an important teleconference on updates from the American Society of Hematology meeting. So for more information about LRF's program services, and resources, and to register for the next teleconference, please call the LRF helpline at 800-500-9976 or visit lymphoma.org. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks so much, Max. That was wonderful. An excellent uh, overview. And for those of you, I think many of you on the call are familiar with the Lymphoma Research Foundation, but if you're not, it's a wonderful resource for all of you to use. Before we take questions, um, I'd like to just say a few words about Cancer Care as a resource as well for all of you. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide 
um, really oncology social work services to people throughout the country. Um, and that translates to someone to talk to in terms of counseling services. We offer practical and financial assistance. We also have a host of different types of online and telephone support groups, both for people living with lymphoma and people living with cancer, as well as people living, as well as caregivers. Um, so caregivers also can participate in our programs as well. And um, those are all available on our website, www.cancercare.org. Um, in addition, we also offer um, just a lot of practical help to people. We have uh, booklets and we have many other workshops like the one that um, Max just mentioned in terms of one that we're doing on December 12th, so that there are lots of different resources um, that you can access from Cancer Care. Um, and our toll-free number, which is on all of your materials, is 1-800-813-4673. And you'll be getting all that information, as well as the information that Mr. Mulcahy mentioned as a follow-up to this call today, um, although it's been on all the materials that you've gotten so far. So with that being said, you have lots of resources at your fingertips, and we now want to take questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And with so many of you on the call today, we recognize that if we don't get your question at the end of the call, I will give you the places to call to get your questions answered. But let's, right now, I'm going to ask Candace to bring all of our speakers on board and let the questions begin. And Candace, you would explain to people how to queue up questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then the number one key on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from Ron R. Your line is now open. Hello. Th thank you very much for a very informative uh, uh, teleconference. If a patient has a B cell follicular non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and has been treated for years uh, with good results and staying in remission, which is rituximab. In view of the new therapies, would you suggest any adjustments to this? In other words, I understand adjustments normally would be because the disease resurfaces, but I'm thinking if, if the concept is maintenance and preventing it from resurfacing, uh, with the new therapies, would there be a, uh, something, some efficacy to actually change the, the standard rituximab uh, therapy? Well, thank you, Ron. That's an excellent question. I'm going to ask Dr. Chesson if he would please address that question, and I'll address it in a general sure. way. Um, it will help many of you on the call. Sure. We generally don't recommend switching therapies that are working uh, because there isn't an indefinite number of treatment options, and if the disease is going to come back, uh, you'd like to have as many options as possible. Uh, maintenance therapy, as I mentioned earlier, does prolong times of progression but does not impact survival and does cost and has toxicity. So we, we don't use it very much here. I know a lot, a lot of places do. Uh, if maintenance rituximab stopped working, then you wouldn't want to use rituximab again because it, it's, uh, you're now, your cells are now resistant to it, and you certainly want to get involved in one of the newer treatments. And that's where a clinical trial would be very important because that's where you have uh, your immediate access to the most novel and effective agents that are available. Thank you. And Dr. Schechter, did you want to add anything to that? No, I think I, uh, I agree completely with Bruce's uh, answer. You know, if something is working, if it's not broken, don't fix it. And no matter what therapy we talk about, um, there will be a certain number of patients that that is the right therapy, and there's a tail on the 
on the Kaplan-Meier curves of almost any study that you'll look at. So, you know, rituxan may be the home, rituximab may be the home run for one patient and may be something that works temporarily in another, or it may be something that doesn't work at all in another patient. And unfortunately, we're not at the point where we can tell a priori what the best treatment for an individual patient is. So uh, I think if something's working, you have part of the answer and you stick with it. I agree completely with Bruce. We have a, a question from one of our online participants. Is rituxan considered immunotherapy? So, Absolutely. Sure. All right, excellent. Okay, that was a thank you. And we now have another one. Right. Tell, oh, did you want to add anything to that? Or? You know, as I talked about initially, immunotherapies, there are a number of varieties. Antibodies are the most widely used one in which you're taking a protein, an immune protein, and it kills the lymphoma cells. So it is a specific... The difference between chemotherapy and immunotherapy, chemotherapy is very nonspecific. It's like dropping a bomb on everything. It, it, you know, it affects normal cells as well as malignant cells. Now, immunotherapies are much more specific, and uh, they're like, as I said, the stealth bomber rather than the atomic bomb. So antibodies are specific for certain types of cells. They're not totally specific, like rituximab uh, also binds to normal B cells, but it, it also gets rid of all the lymphoma B cells. So it is a, an immunotherapy in that sense of the word. Um, you know, we, have nor we normally have immunoglobulins in our body. They help us fight infections. This is one that has been constructed uh, to specifically target B cells and therefore getting rid of B lymphoma cells. It's an immune therapy. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and our next telephone question, um, uh, Candice. And our next question comes from Stephen L. Your line is now open. Again, Stephen L., your line is open. Um, hello, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, Stephen, absolutely. Your question. Uh, yeah, Dr. Chester had mentioned early on about, and I know he addressed it a little bit in the first question, regarding um, maintenance treatment on rituxan, that, you know, they really don't recommend it because I'm in the middle, well, towards the end of a four-treatment maintenance. So I'm wondering about, you know, carrying that forward. Uh, I was told that it would give me about a 50-50 chance of, uh, nothing coming back within about a five to eight year period. So just wanted his thoughts on that again. Well, there have been multiple randomized clinical trials in which patients have received either rituximab alone or rituximab and chemotherapy followed by maintenance or not. And there has never been a study that shows a survival benefit. All the studies show that the time to disease progression may be longer, but the eventual outcome is exactly the same, and you're put through treatments. Uh, there are multiple schedules of administration of maintenance, but you're put through a number of intravenous injections over a certain period of time at cost of tens of thousands of dollars with some side effects and taking other medicines and inconvenience and taking you away from your de normal daily activities with no survival benefit. There are several studies which have shown that if you don't get maintenance, when the disease, if and when the disease comes back, uh, 
then you can use rituximab again successfully and do just as well than if you had maintenance, only at much less expense and toxicity. So whether you stop it or not is a discussion you have to have with your treating physician, uh, but those are some of the arguments against prolonged maintenance therapy for rituximab. And Dr. Shuster, did you want to add? Yeah, I, um, I think everything Bruce said is accurate. I would say that, um, you know, it's each each particular um, um, patient's case is unique and, and best taken up uh, with the doctor uh, that's treating the patient. Because, for example, while you look at populations and you may not see a, uh, a survival benefit um, overall, um, it may be that in particular patients, a progression-free survival benefit is of particular um, importance for whatever reason. Um, that patient may uh, not have access to um, um, anything, you know, any CAT scans, for example, for some reason. I'm making that up. But it, there may be a unique reason for an individual patient to want to not have to go through you know, uh, relapse or to put off a uh, potential for relapse, so the risk of relapse, or reduce the risk for relapse. So, so I'd say you know each patient case is kind of unique, and and uh, but in general, yeah, I, I agree with Bruce completely. And that's such an excellent point. We, um, of course, this call is continuing, but all the information that you received today, we do want you to run it past your treating healthcare team, of course, because they have access to all of your records. But keep asking the questions because it gives you just more information um, and, and we hope makes you more informed um, as when you ask the questions. So we have a question now from one of our online participants. Please tell us about the complete remission duration for follicular lymphoma patients who receive a complete remission from CAR-T. For these patients, what are the warning signs of progression? So Dr. Shuster, do you want to take that question? Yeah, I mean, uh, so, so, so far we've treated 14 patients with follicular lymphoma um, with CAR-T cells, and um, of the patients that had um, complete responses, uh, which is about um, three-quarters of the patients, 72% or 3% or something, the, none of those patients have had a relapse, so there are no warning signs of relapse. And so far, the median um, time that I've followed these patients is two years on average, just under two years, like a, a few weeks under two years. So, so um, um, you know, at this point, you know, there doesn't seem to be anything unique about um, um, what would be a relapse-related symptom, um, and the durability of this approach seems seems good. And, and um, Dr. Chesson, did you want to add anything? Uh, no, he's, he's the one who's got the experience with this therapy. I will say one thing, though. I, I had a patient of mine who had very bulky follicular lymphoma and had failed all standard regimens, and uh, we sent her up there, and she's been one of those long-term remissions. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it can be exceptionally effective therapy. Thank you. And our next telephone question, please, um, Candice. And our next question comes from Denise M. Your line is now open. Hi, this is a question for Dr. Chesson, please. Uh, for a treatment-naive follicular lymphoma patient wanting to avoid permanent side effects from chemotherapy, um, is it realistic today to say that there are currently enough non-chemotherapy-based treatments to successfully treat the disease from diagnosis through multiple relapse? Excellent question. Dr. Excellent question. This has been, my, I feel like Don Quixote for the last 14 years. I've been poking around at windmills trying to get rid of chemotherapy for follicular lymphoma and CLL, 
And we've been doing these doublets of biologicals, uh, and I have patients still in remission seven, eight, nine years, and many, many patients who have never seen chemotherapy. Um, as I mentioned, this R-squared regimen with its 95% response rate, the vast majority complete remissions, uh, and they appear to be very durable, uh, is an excellent choice. And if that, you know, it, if that stops working, and so far most patients who've gotten on the front line are still in remission years later, if it does stop working, then there are other regimens. There's idelalisib, which is a targeted therapy that's been approved. I mentioned the Zevalin, not widely used, but also very effective. And we are developing new regimens all the time. I'd say 95 plus, maybe 99% of the clinical trials we're doing now in follicular lymphoma have no chemotherapy in them whatsoever. There's only one I can think of that does. Um, so, yes, it is very possible. I have patients who have been treating for more than a decade, one biological regimen after another with no chemotherapy and they're doing just fine, living normal lives, feeling great. And some have not relapsed six, seven, eight years down the road. Thank you. Dr. Chester, did you want to add anything? No, I, I agree again with Bruce. Uh, We're so it, sounds like, it, sounds like, it sounds like we had this plan, Bruce. But uh, it actually, um, uh, I, my feeling is the longer that you um, live, uh, after having had this diagnosis made, the greater the probability that you'll continue to live, uh, you know, um, given the pace of, at least with respect to this disease, you'll continue to live given the pace of, of research. I mean, there seems to be major breakthroughs every few years. So if you're in remission with one agent for a few years and your disease comes back um, and you're, you're, it's not felt that that agent would be useful again, you know, because sometimes you can use agents that have been useful for years again and again, there, I guarantee you there'll be something else in addition to a multitude of other things which exist now. So, so I think there, there's reason to believe that, you know, uh, as time goes on, um, each year the prognosis gets better and better, and, um, um, and, and, and so I think there's reason for optimism. Um. Thank you. Um, what's a question in front of our online participants? Um, it's very specific. I'm hoping that our speakers can just generalize this a bit for all of our participants. Um, my husband was diagnosed, with, uh, diagnosed three years ago at the age of 47. He had RCHOP chemotherapy treatment, followed by hyper-CVAD, Zevalin, and finally an autologous stem cell transplant. The CAT scans have come back clean, but his colonoscopy picked up mantle cells in the rectum area, which was affected prior to any treatment as well. The oncologist couldn't say if this was a relapse or if that area wasn't completely taken care of from the initial treatment. My husband is now on watchful waiting. He doesn't have any symptoms and appears to be in good general health. Do you agree with this approach, or would you treat it with something else? So I'm going to ask our speakers. They can't really provide, of course, a specific consult, but they can give you some general guidelines to think this through and even maybe other questions to ask your healthcare team. So, um, Dr. Chesson, would you like to discuss this first? And Dr. Sure. So this, this is a person with mantle cell lymphoma, which is an uncommon form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, only about 6% of cases, and it frequently involves the bowel. About half the cases will have bowel involvement, uh, even at presentation. Uh, there have been, over the last couple of years, three drugs approved for the treatment of patients with mantle cell lymphoma that have progressed after initial therapy. Bortezomib and lenalidomide, or Revlimid, 
uh, which have about a 25% response rate, but ibrutinib, which is highly effective in chronic lymphocytic leukemia as well, has about a 60% response rate, and some of these may last a couple of years. But as I mentioned earlier, when we're talking about another disease, we don't have an infinite number of options. So if the patient is doing well otherwise and just has a minimal amount of disease, then we would tend to just follow them very carefully. Uh, it's not, you know, come back and see me in six months. We probably see them every couple of months. And with reinforcement that if there's any change, come to see us sooner. And we would start them on one of the, uh, if we didn't have a clinical trial, we would start them on a uh, probably a brutinib for relapsed mantle cell lymphoma. It, it's a very effective drug, uh, but, you know, I'd use it when I needed it because there aren't a lot of options that are effective after that point. I don't believe Steve has much experience with mantle cell and his CAR T cells. Uh, yeah, not yet. Um, but I, I think that the, um, the, the approach that the physician uh, that's managing his patients using is entirely reasonable and f for many of the reasons that Bruce said. So, um. Thank you. And thank um, these are wonderful questions. I have to say this is an outstanding audience, and we've got speakers as well, but these questions are really amazing, and thank you for um, really posing them. And um, our next question, uh, Candace, is on the phone. Our next question comes from Christine Kay. Your line is now open. Hi. Thank you very much for this program. Um, I was treated with RCHOP um, for non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and I'm in remission. Um, if um, one of these immunotherapeutic drugs are available to me, such as um, the CAR T-cell therapy, would I need to go through a stem cell transplant first, or could I avoid that? You could avoid that. I mean, um, in my opinion, uh, this form of therapy is actually going to replace uh, high-dose chemotherapy and stem cell transplant for lymphomas, but we need to have uh, the studies done to prove that. So that's my that's my bias. But right now, you know, I think there's no reason to go through a transplant first. The T cells do the work that chemotherapy would do in an autologous transplant, and they do a much more targeted form of immunotherapy um, than an allogeneic or donor transplant would. Thank you. And um, Dr. Chester, do you want to add to that? Or? I'll add to it what Steve always adds to mine. I agree with him completely. <laughs> We're quite a team here. You're a great team. This is amazing. And, and now we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so this is a, can you foresee a time, I'm actually going to ask Dr. Chesson if you could address this, can you foresee a time in the immunotherapy era when follicular lymphoma moves from being a chronic disease to a curable one? That's a great question. Um, you know, if you look at, the survival curves for follicular lymphoma now. There have been several studies that have recently been published where if you have not recurred within two years, you get a complete remission with BR, with uh, RCHOP or whatever, and you haven't recurred within two years, your survival is similar to an age-matched population without lymphoma. Whether those patients are cured or not, I can't say because we haven't followed them out long enough, but there are patients in first remission, 
10, 15 years and going strong with no evidence of disease. And, you know, some of us are starting to scratch our heads and say, hey, we, maybe we are curing this, uh, this, this follicular lymphoma because they're not relapsing long-term. Now, patients who do progress within two years, their outcome, unfortunately, has been uh, really suboptimal, and we're trying to find ways to salvage them. But if you haven't, that's kind of the magic number. Uh, you do exceptionally well. Now, not everybody, but the vast majority of patients. So is it cured? I don't know, but certainly patients are in remission for decades uh, and doing extremely well. Maybe they're Dr. cured. Thank you. And Dr. Shepter, do you want to add to that? Um, nothing to add, actually. Okay. Um, uh, that was perfect. Okay, excellent. Perfect team. Okay, and our next question from the phone, please. And our next question comes from Joan B. Your line is now open. Uh, yes, I wanted to know if you had follicular lymphoma and it has transformed to large diffuse, would you be eligible for the CAR-T trials, and have you uh, had any patients with transformed follicular lymphoma? Yeah, we will be presenting that at the Murray Society Hematology meeting this year. Um, yes, the answer is yes, yes. Uh, uh, transformed follicular lymphoma, transformed to large cell, does uh, well with this approach, as does uh, double-hit um, um, large B-cell lymphomas, which many of the transformed follicular lymphomas turn out to, uh, to be, in fact. And any additional comments? Or? Okay, excellent. Okay. And um, from one of our online participants, do all immunotherapy patients require lifelong infusions of immunoglobulins? What is the state of the world's supply of human immunoglobulins? Um, Dr. Shuster, do you want to address that? Well, um, I'll start by talking about the T-cell thing, the CAR therapy. All the patients that I've described have had one single, it's one single T-cell infusion. So there's no repetitive infusions, uh, et cetera. These patients are treated once, and they go into remission, and, and it appears to be a durable remission uh, for those that do go into remission. And, and um, the, with regard to um, uh, monoclonal antibody therapy, um, these are the synthetic antibodies that are manufactured, not um, collected from uh, uh, pooled um, human serum. And uh, there, you know, they could, you know I, I'm not worried that there's ever going to be a global shortage. In fact, we're now getting into biosimilars, and so I think the, that uh, we'll always have monoclonal antibody therapy available for repeat administration in patients where that's the appropriate approach. I, I think that part of the question was, the fact that your patients require IVIG oh, oh, treatment, oh, oh, oh. and there's a world oh, oh. shortage of yeah. that. So, so um, I presented those data at um, uh, at ASCO this June. So it looks like at about one year, um, the amazing thing about this therapy is that um, uh, most of the patients, well, may, uh, maybe close to half the patients are recovering their B cells and beginning to make antibodies again. So our patients... Uh, on my trial, in the lymphoma studies, and again, these are adult patients. These aren't pediatric patients with leukemia, so the immune system may be different. But our data suggests that the immune system recovers, um, and actually it was the minority of patients on my uh, trial that got immune globulin. I did not 
prophylactically put people on immune globulin uh, um, to prevent infections. I simply followed their immune globulins down, and then I followed them as they recovered. And now there were a few patients that needed gamma globulin and, and got it. So, yeah, I don't foresee this form of therapy as making a, um, you know, a, a some, some great tremendous um, demand for uh, uh, human immunoglobulin. In fact, the mystery is why do you recover your B cells but your lymphoma stays in remission? Thank you. And Dr. Jeffin, do you want to add anything? Or? No. no. Okay. All right. And our last question, um, I'll give that to um, Dr. Jeffin. Will anti idiotype peptidobodies become available anytime soon? Uh, anti-idiotypic peptibodies. Well, we did a number of studies with anti-idiotypic antibodies, and three large studies were negative. Um, I am unaware of any clinical trials at the moment uh, looking at peptibodies. Um, and so if I'm not aware of any trials, then there probably aren't many data out there. So it's unlikely that they will be available for clinical use in the near future. Well, excellent. Well, um, actually, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been just extraordinary. Um, and just specifically calling out to Dr. Chesson and, and Dr. Chester, just really this has been quite the tour de force, lots of questions. And I want to thank all of you who've asked such great questions, both on the phone and online. Um, I again want to thank the Lymphoma Research Foundation for their support of this program. And now, um, and I want to thank all of you who've been listening as well. Now, I had said that if you had questions that we didn't get the answer, that I would give you resources of where to get those questions answered, and so I want to do that. And in this particular call, I definitely would recommend that for some of you who have some questions regarding um, your medical treatment, um, uh, I would definitely recommend that you certainly call the Lymphoma Research Foundation. It's just a wonderful resource, of course, for all of you at 1-800-500-9976. And in addition to that, we do have a National Cancer Institute, 1-800-422-6237. Those are wonderful resources for you actually to utilize to get your medically focused questions answered. And there are so many programs coming up, and the Lymphoma Research Foundation just has a, just a wealth of information for you. If, on the other hand, you're wanting to get some counseling or help with your, just practical help with your um, coping with lymphoma or wish to join a telephone or online support group or just want to talk about just what you're going through right now, I would definitely suggest that you go ahead and call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. And I have to say that in planning today's program, we recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. And so with that in mind, we want you to know that there are lots of resources for you out there. So although this is an hour program, our services to you do not end when this program concludes. They are there for you endlessly to some extent. And you've got really a premier lymphoma research, lymphoma research foundation organization that's been there for you for so many, for such a long time, and that is definitely a resource. And you have Cancer Care, the two organizations. And then there are many other organizations that you've seen in our materials that are there as well. But those two might be good ones to start with. Um, and also, um, we do have programs coming up. So this is not the last program that we're going to have. And we have one, I think, that uh, Mr. Mulcahy mentioned. 
on December 12th, update on lymphoma from the 2016 American Hematology Annual Meeting, or ASH Annual Meeting. And that program will be happening at the same time period. And we do recommend, some of you have already registered for that program, but if you haven't, please go ahead and do that. And we also have another program called Managing Sensory Disruptions During Cancer Treatments, and that's a program that could be of interest to you having to do with some of the treatment side effects that you may experience. And that one is occurring on December 5th. So there's lots of coming up, and, um, and there's also a lot of just day-to-day services that we all offer that we want you to take advantage of. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to really thank you. It's an extraordinary group, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may all disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.